Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular, completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. If you've read any Quitlet, Catherine Gray's book, The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober is likely on your bookshelf or in your Kindle. It's a book I absolutely love and is one of the first I recommend to women as they're starting on their alcohol-free journey for all the reasons we're going to talk about today. So I'm incredibly excited because my guest today is the author of The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, and we're here to talk about all things drinking and quitting drinking, her writing, and her new book, Sunshine Warm Sober, Unexpected Sober Joy That Lasts. So Catherine Gray is a Sunday Times bestselling author of five books and an award-winning writer and editor. Her hit debut, The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, was a Sunday Times top 10 bestseller. Since then, she's published The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober Journal, The Critically Acclaimed Unexpected Joy of Being Single, and The Unexpected Joy of the Ordinary. When she's not writing, Catherine can generally be found taking 20 identical pictures of the sunset, wondering why she's always the sweatiest person in yoga, 
fighting her spend it all financial urges or scanning the body language of strangers to see if it's okay to pet their dog. So Catherine, welcome. Thank you. Well done for getting through that. That was a lot of unexpected joy of. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love it. And I have to say, I almost broke out laughing right at the end about scanning body language (laughs) of strangers because my daughter is seven years old and she does that all the time. And it frankly, like, she's like signaling like to an airplane to people at dinner when their dog's under their table. And I'm like, stop it. <laughs> yeah. I'm basically a dog prowler. Yeah. I just follow people around. And, and I mean, lockdown was really upsetting for so many reasons, but also that you can then touch strangers' dogs. Uh, but now I have my own. So I'm, I, I, I feel less of an urge to stalk strangers who own canines, which is a relief for everyone involved. Yeah, I just saw that. So what kind of dog did you get? Um, he's a Springer Poo, so uh, otherwise known as a Sproodle, um, <laughs> which is a, a Springer Spaniel and a Poodle. So he's basically just really bouncy and um, really fun and loving. Oh, very cool. That's awesome. <laughs> Well, so one of the, re- I mean, you know, I've been like asking you to come on the podcast for a while because I absolutely love your books. And one of the reasons I love them so much is that your approach to life without alcohol in general is that you challenge the idea that when you remove alcohol, your life is boring and dull and kind of flip it on its head to say that, you know, sober life is actually not only good for you, but way better and more fun than drinking ever was. Yeah, I mean, I I knew that on some cellular level right at the very beginning um, that I wanted my sobriety to feel more about emancipation rather than deprivation. So I set out to find everything I could that was uh, positive about it. And it has been an entirely positive experience. I just, I'm so much happier. I can't even tell you. And everything about my life is better. And not only that, but this is a universal experience. You don't, nobody regrets quitting drinking. They only regret picking back up again. So we've been missold this um, lie that drinking is a happier life and sober is deprivation. And it's just not the case the other way around in most cases so yeah it's it's just a big fat myth yeah and it's also I mean I feel like the absolute hardest time is is what so many of us go through for you know a couple years often of like knowing drinking is good good for you trying to quit getting a few days drinking again beating ourselves up like that's the really crappy part that can last a long time yeah, that's how. I mean, it, it truly is. And I must have had about 37 day ones. Um, and the way the shame you feel about slipping again, the having to tell people that you've drank again, and you've busted your day one is, it's just so all consuming. And I really feel for people who are in that process. But little do they know that that is when you do most of your learning. I mean, it feels like they're failing, but they're learning all the time because in every slip, there's an important lesson. And if you heed it, then it can get you to a day one that sticks. So it's so painful, but it's where you do your most learning about how to live a completely alcohol-free life. 
Yeah. And it takes a really long time to figure out mm. all of those lessons and, um, you know, what to do and what works for you because it really, the approach that works for different people is completely different. You know, there's no one way. No, it's, it's as unique as every person is. Um, I mean, even if somebody does it a, a very traditional way and they go to rehab and do 12 steps, even if they do that to the letter, they still have done it slightly different to the person next to them in the meeting or the rehab. They still will. They'll have interpreted it in a different way. They'll have used different tools within the program. And it, there's so many ways to get sober that it's it's just as many ways as there are people. Yeah. And so if folks haven't read The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, your first book, because I know that this book that you've written just now is a bit of a sequel to it. Will you tell us about that first book? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> so it's oh, it's quite hard to contend. But basically, it's about me quitting drinking back in 2013. And I wrote it when I was four years sober. And originally, I wanted to call it the life-changing magic of sobering up, a bit like, a, a, you know, a spin-off of Marie Kondo, yeah. the life-changing magic of tidying up. But my agent talked me out of it. She just, she came up with the unexpected joy of being sober. But I mean, it's the same vibe, isn't it? And I just wanted to tell everyone what it's actually like. I think a lot of um, Quitlix focuses on that struggle, that painful bit. Um, before you start even trying to quit or the bit where you do have the 37 day ones. I mean, if you look at it, I've read a study that showed that it takes four years between intending to quit and actually quitting for good. And I actually think even though, you know, probably only from when I publicly said I want to quit drinking to actually my day one was on the surface of it five months it was more like four years. It actually was because it had been like an earworm in my head for so long before I actually even started trying to quit. And so many of the books just end when when the when the day one comes along, or they maybe have one chapter or two chapters about what sober living feels like. And so it feels like it's all darkness and not enough light. Um, so I flipped that and made most of the book about the light that comes after the dark. There's still, you know, there's a lot of gritty stuff in there, but most of it is about the, you know, the, the dawn rather than the darkness. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I cannot believe how fast this year is flying by. We're all busy. But one of the most important things you can do to make sure you're on the right path is to carve out some time to celebrate your victories and to notice what you've wanted to change but haven't been able to yet. Whether you're navigating sobriety, setting boundaries, or striving to be the best version of yourself, therapy can be a game changer. Therapy is for anyone looking for growth and support. And if you're considering it, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's convenient, it's flexible, and it's entirely online. So take a moment for yourself and visit betterhelp.com 
forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash someday. Yeah, I love that because you do a lot of contrasting in terms of like attending weddings when you were drinking and, you know, attending what wet means once you've quit drinking and dating and everything else, like really showing the how different it is, but also how much better it is once you've left the booze behind. Yeah. And I do that in the new book as well, because I really like that tool, that kind of split screen diary tool. And for me, I mean, this is the thing for me, it consolidates it for me as well in my own head. Writing these books helps my sobriety because it, I really then there's, there's literally no even, even a sliver of doubt that this is the lifestyle for me going forward. Yeah. Uh, because I write about it so much <laughs> and, and that to me helps me work it all out. It's like that Joan Didion quote. I don't know what I think until I write it down. Um, if I hadn't written, written these books about being sober and loving it so much, who knows? I might have gone back. You know, it, it, it for me, writing has been a therapy and I recommend it to everyone who's creative. Yeah, I feel the same way about the podcast because it forces you both to go back and remember stuff that maybe would have faded out and you would have forgotten about and also focus on what's so much better now. Exactly. I mean, if you have to plunge yourself back into a moment, <laughs> say, say like a, a, a moment, there's, there's one in the new book about me waking up on holiday and um, not knowing why my, my hair is wet and my, why my clothes are full of sand and then the memory coming back to me of what I did the night before and then contrasting it with waking up on a sober holiday and just knowing exactly what I've done. For the past seven and three quarter years, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's um, it's so much better, and you, for me, having to airdrop myself back into those moments just strengthens it all for me. Because it, it would be very easy because society is very pro alcohol, and alcohol marketing is everywhere, and we do the marketing for them, you know, by sharing things on Instagram of us for the drink. And the hangovers are not Instagrammed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, like in your book, in the first one, The Unexpected Joy, you have a whole section on unplugging from the alcohol matrix. And it is shocking how much of, you call it a booze pusher, society is. Yeah. I mean, even if you're watching TV and film, if, if you completely remove, you know, the fact that alcohol sponsors it or there's advert breaks or whatever, 80 to 95% of TV and film depicts alcohol in a positive light, said this study. So it's, it's something that we don't see very often. If, if you, and it can, over the years, you can forget how bad it was and find yourself inching slowly towards drinking again. Because, I mean, when I was about four years sober, I remember one of my best friends was a therapist saying to me, but, you know, you've you've um, disentangled yourself from dependent drinking now, so surely you can drink moderately and, you know, you're happy now. You've sorted everything out in your life, so surely you can drink again. And I'm like, no, <laughs> the reason I'm happy and everything is good is because I'm not drinking. If I go back to drinking, then it will all become a mess again. It, it was 
but the way that people think about drinking, it's almost like another food group. So some people just find it unthinkable that you never want to drink again. But to me, that's a giant relief. I actually love that. And I want to ask you more about that because in your new book, you talk about the idea of two different things being true, right? So you're, you know, around the idea of like once an addict, always an addict, that you are no longer addicted to drinking because you're not drinking, but you have no doubt that if you were to pick up again, it would be a serious problem. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I think I think it's um, a really interesting thing that these two things can coexist at the same time. It's it's more nuanced than if you were once addicted to something, then you're addicted to it forevermore. Because I am not currently addicted to alcohol. Um, I don't crave it. I could, I don't. But if I if I needed to, I could have it in my house and not drink it. And once upon a time, that would have been unthinkable. You know, I needed a, a booze-free bolt hole to to feel safe. Uh, so I'm not in any way, um, physically or psychologically, addicted to alcohol anymore. And yet, neuroscience tells us this is true. Once you've done something to an addicted level, those neural pathways live on in the brain. They're disused and they've shrunk and they're covered in cobwebs and you're not using them anymore. But if you pick up alcohol again, you will wake them up and those neural pathways will fire again. And so you will most likely go back to drinking as you did before, just in the same way as if you were once a concert pianist. (laughs) If you sit down at a piano you will play piano to the same level that you did before. And this is really something that was really interesting to find out for the book is that neuroscientists and and I talked to four experts very in-depth for this new book. And they now describe, they, they say, most of them say, you know, addiction is not a disease. That's what we think. I'm just quoting them. It's more like a learning hyper ability. It's our brains have learned to drink to this level, to become addicted to this substance. And they've now placed it on a survival, um, in a survival region of the brain that normally you would have, you know, eating, sleeping, you know, running away from lions, things like that. So it's become imperative in your brain. And so actually it's, it is almost like you've learned to do it and you can unlearn to do it and learn to be sober instead but it doesn't mean those neural pathways are going anywhere so for me that explains why those two things can coexist I am not currently addicted but if I were to restart I believe I would be addicted again yeah yeah and that makes so much sense I'm I'm glad you dug into that because I thought that was incredibly interesting thank you so In your first book, In the Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, I just want to hype it a little bit because I loved it so much and it's so helpful for women when they're, when they're starting out. Your chapter two in learning to be sober, you outlined 30 things that got you through your first 30 days. Mm, Yeah. So gosh, I'm trying to remember what some of these were. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's a while. No, of course. I've got them in front of Um, me. They're just so, you know, within the, 
in the spirit of everyone has a completely different path. I just love that you gave an example of like the big things and the little things that really helped you from, you know, crying your eyes out to taking long baths to, you know, how you went to sleep and carrying around my little pony to the big stuff like addictive voice recognition and joining a hundred day challenge. I mean, there is so much that goes into putting together the tools you need to get through the first 30 days, which are really the hardest. Yeah, I mean, they really are. They're, they're so tough. If you look at the first 30 days, honestly, I think they are the equivalent of the whole of year four. They are just so savagely difficult. Um, but also, you even in the first 30 days, you start to get glimmers of what it's going to be like later on. You get these kind of little surges of euphoria and you know, just, just little things like when I was three weeks in, I think it was, I started sleeping through the night, which mm -hmm. just had not been a reality for me for so long because halfway through the night, the alcohol would start leaving my system and that wakes you up. And, you know, you have the 4am ceilings there where you can't get back to sleep because basically you've gone into withdrawal. Um, and I now know that's a really common side effect of, um, you know, a night's drinking. And yeah, just, just, I mean, everyone should just try everything and keep what works and they'll find their 30 tools that will help them. But the best advice I would give anyone is to treat it like you've just, you're studying for a degree. You know, you, you are trying to learn how to undo something that you've done probably for at least a couple of decades because most people don't quit until they're in their, you know, late thirties. Um, that tends to be about the average age, um, if not forties or fifties. So it's, if you think about it that way, I'm trying to unlearn something that I've done for decades. You, you understand how much time you need to put into this to, to break that. So it just read everything you can do everything you can try everything, you know, tapping meetings, whatever, and keep what works for you. Oh my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48. So if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep, it is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H.com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, so your new book, you said that the first 30 days was sort of the whole of year four in terms of challenges and and things you um, were going through and learning. And your new book is is basically your four to eight. Is that right? Yeah. So it's um it's yeah, so it's year five, six, seven, and eight. I'm in year eight at the minute. Um, although I'm not I'm not eight years sober, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm <laughs> in my eighth year. <laughs> I turn eight years in a couple of months. So I didn't expect that. I was going to learn so much <laughs> in later recovery. I just, I kind of thought I'd learn all I was going to. And so it was a real surprise to me to find that I had to dig really deep to do things like, and in, in many ways, the things that you learn in late in longer term recovery don't seem like they're to do with drinking, but they are to do with drinking because if you don't tackle them, then they can lead to resentments that leads to thinking about drinking that leads to drinking. So things like setting boundaries with people, digging through childhood trauma. I mean, a lot of us will see the term childhood trauma and think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. That applies to people who've had a really rough time. You know, that's not me. But if you actually do the test, the um, adverse childhood experience test, you might find that it does apply to you. It did apply to me. And it's the chart-topping predisposition for a later addiction is having a tough time in childhood. Um, so it trumps anything else, you know, genetics. Um, drinking under the age of 15 is also a big one, but that only makes you four times more likely. Yeah, childhood trauma makes you seven times more likely. So it's 100% the predictor of later having a dependence issue. And it's um, not everything that you expect, right? In terms of childhood trauma, you know, abuse yeah. or anything like that. There's a lot more in there. Yeah. So one of the, I'm just doing this from memory, but one of the questions on the questionnaire that determines if you have uh, four or more of these ACEs, what they call them, um, is were you consistently um, shamed or humiliated by a caregiver? You know, and I wouldn't have thought of that as, you know, name calling from a caregiver. I wouldn't have really thought of that as a traumatic childhood experience, but it is. Another one is, um, was some, you know, a caregiver or an adult in your house addicted to something while you were growing up? And again, you wouldn't really think of that as necessarily a traumatic childhood. When I think of trauma, I think of, you know, um, the really dark stuff you know bereavement and sexual abuse and of course those do feature in that questionnaire but some of the um other ones are, are less likely and more surprising yeah and in the book i think you say that staying sober is about so much more than putting down the alcohol right so you get away from the from the physical or habitual or emotional addiction and then you're left with everything else that you kind of led you to do that in the first place yeah, I mean, and it's not just everything that's within you. It's also the um, machine, you know, the giant marketing machinery around alcohol. Like, for instance, that um, I'm sure it's the same in the States, but that alcohol brands are still allowed to sponsor sports. And they've done something really interesting this year in that they've started, you know, using their zero proof alcohol, their, um, you know, zero proof yeah. beer. It, but I think that's a preemptive strike. I think it's because they know that it's it's the 
the net is closing in because a lot of countries have now outlawed any sort of alcohol sports sponsorship because obviously alcohol we know it's really bad for our health it's it's practically on a par with smoking so a lot of countries have outlawed it now but we haven't here in the UK and I know it's still going on in the states so oh, yeah. I think that <laughs> I don't I, I don't know when they're, they're going to separate those two I think well it's a very clever way of them saying well hang on you know we're we're promoting our zero proof brands but yeah. they're still promoting their their name you know when people see zero I won't ne- mention names but you know zero proof whatever beer brand they they're still marketing that beer <laughs> yes it's not like it's not like them marketing say for instance seedlip which doesn't have an alcoholic um version of it they're not in enhancing that brand awareness um but anyway i've got i've gone off onto a tangent here no what, well, what, i think um, it's so interesting you mentioned the you know how inherently bad it is for you and one thing in your book that that sort of blew my mind cuz i actually didn't know it you said in a 2019 study a bottle of wine a week was compared to the cancer risk of puffing 10 cigarettes for women yeah and five cigarettes for men and uh, i mean that study was obviously huge it, it's um it's a hugely shocking thing to learn and yet it really didn't get the press it should have. Well, I and drank a bottle or more bottles a night, 365 nights a year. So I was basically smoking 10 cigarettes a day, every day of the year <laughs> in terms of yeah. risk. Yeah. I mean, that's what that's, that's what the study found uh, because it increases the incidence of seven different types of cancer, especially in women. So it's um, it's a really shocking thing to learn. And yet we have alcohol without health warnings. Don't know what the case is in the, the States, but here we have no health warnings on alcohol. And yet cigarettes are hidden away. They're not promoted in any way. They're not advertised. They're covered in health warnings and pictures of diseased lungs. And alcohol is is not in any way. So, and the most recent research here shows only one in 10 Brits knows that alcohol is related to cancer, that alcohol can cause cancer. So obviously the education is not there and it needs to be done, but it's not being done. So all of these things, it's it's not just on a micro level, you know, keeping yourself sober. It's also on a, it's on a macro level, realizing that a lot of this is wrong, <laughs> Uh, a lot of what's going on is corrupt and once you know that once you can kind of see the the man behind the curtain the the um the reason why we're not getting the whole truth about alcohol you are much more immune to the marketing because you can just see that it's nonsense it's just smoke and mirrors that's trying to sell you a product and even the memes oh my god the memes in lockdown were unbelievable you know, lockdown rules are airport rules. Start drinking at 11 a.m. if you want to. And all the homeschooling mummy juice memes as well. They were everywhere. Yeah, it's like this circular firing squad, right? Because, you know, we've been conditioned since birth to basically believe that we need to drink, that it's amazing, that it'll help us, that it'll, it's sort of part of being adult and bonding. And, and then there's the marketing and then your friends keep reinforcing it too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's from all sides. 
So in order to stay strong and resolute and clear um, in the midst of all of that storming around you, um, you need to immerse yourself in it and know about it and know that it's wrong that, you know, we don't know that a bottle of wine is the same as 10 cigarettes in terms of the cancer risk. It's that really helps you uh, feel like you're um, on the forefront of what already is happening. You know, this sober revolution, which is pretty much the same as in the late 90s and early noughties when people started turning their back on cigarettes. And then, of course, the smoking ban came in and the health warnings came and the advertising was banned and all of that. And that will all happen with alcohol. It's just a matter of time. I so, love that you wait. said that. So do you feel like there is a sober revolution going on? Yeah. I mean, the, the figures back it up. Um, I don't have figures for the states, but here, the the younger you are, the less you drink, which is just completely the opposite to how it's traditionally been. I mean, the biggest drinkers in in the UK are baby boomers. They're, they're 55 to, oh, I can't remember the exact, is it? 55 to 70 mm-hmm. um, and so they're drinking more than their teenage children so millennials who are sort of late 20s into their late 30s I think are a third of them don't drink now and then when you look at generation z which is kind of teens and early 20s they uh, are drinking even less again so it's clear that it's beginning to die out just like smoking did um, we're just really early adopters. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, and you stopped drinking before I did. I didn't stop till about six months before I turned 40, despite, you know, worrying about it or trying to moderate or all the things for a good decade before. Yeah, well, I think that's really common. I think I would, if I could guess, if I could pin a, a guesstimate at the median age, I would say it's probably about 37, 38. I was 33. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, just circumstances. I mean, I, I think if, if my life had, um, if things had been different, then I probably would have drank for longer. You know, I suddenly found myself in a situation where I was freelance and, and in a terrible toxic relationship and could drink all day if I wanted to. And it just, you know, just the circumstances around it created almost like perfect conditions for my addiction to dig its claws in and really take hold and, um, but if I hadn't been in that situation, if I'd continued in full-time work and been in a happy relationship and that kind of thing, I could totally foresee that I would have drank into my 40s and beyond. Um, it just depends when you, it all comes to a head, you know? Yeah. Well, and the sad thing with that is you are just putting off, you know, what you call the unexpected joy of being sober. You're just putting off the feeling of, freedom and happiness and contentment in life in full color without hangovers that is out there for you. I mean, I know I spent so many years trying to hang on to drinking and didn't realize how good I was going to feel once I finally gave it up. Yeah. And I mean, that that is what we can do to help the people coming up behind us is, is uh, obviously, you know, attraction not promotion don't preach because that really turns people off but if people are curious and they ask about it tell them the truth tell them how much better it is um and why not talk about it on socials now that's completely socially accepted when back when i quit 
yeah, it just wasn't. I, I didn't come out on Facebook until, I don't know, it was three years, even when I joined um, Facebook groups that were full of people in recovery. That was the whole point of the group. I used a pseudonym at first because there was still this real shame and stigma attached to it. And that's not the case anymore. I mean, that has really receded and died out. So it's it's definitely something that's shifting and changing. It's been quite glacial, but it's finally really, really happening. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, you actually, not your books, but you were a huge part of me deciding to quit drinking. And I don't think you know this story, but um, I also, I think you quit drinking in 2013. Yeah. So the first time I quit drinking for a year was in 2013 as well. So we were in one of those secret not drinking Facebook groups, the BFB. I've kind of talked about it on my podcast before. And you were posting quite a bit and I was reading everything you were, you were posting and loving it. And then I was sober for a year and then I had my daughter and I went back to drinking as one does sometimes. <laughs> Big yeah. mistake. Um, but I went back to drinking for two years. I quit when she was about 22 months old. And the entire time I was in the BFB, um, one of the women who just first named Jen, who you're good friends with, I also talked to in my first couple of weeks. We were like a week apart the first time we stopped drinking. And so basically three years after I stopped for the first time, you went to San Francisco with Jen and a bunch of other women in your gratitude group. And you posted in the group and you guys were riding cable cars and you were biking across the Golden Gate Bridge and you were drinking tea on the other side. And you looked so healthy and happy and lovely. And I knew all you guys, I mean, knew because originally we were all around the same time period. And I was hung over on my couch for the like month three in a row. And I actually oh. saved that picture of you and Jen on my phone, not to be stalkerish, but I was <laughs> like, this is what I want. Yeah. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you for telling me that. Um, and I mean, that's what I did as well. I I went on there. I mean, because I when I went on there originally, I don't think I what had found my day one. And so I was very much looking at other people and, and thinking, I want what they've got. You know, I, I want that. I want that glow and I want that fun without alcohol. And so it, we can all like give each other a little leg up when we, when we're out and open about being sober. Um, even if it's in a closed group, you don't have to do it, you, you know, where your workmates can see or whatever. Yeah. But it it really does pass it on and pass it down. And that's the best service you can possibly do, I think. When it was such a contrast, right? You talk about this, even in the name of your book that, you know, you're pushing back against the stone cold sober propaganda that when you stop drinking, your life is sad and depressing. And I just remember that image of you guys that you were posting and you were sober and healthy and happy and exploring and having adventures. And I, the drinker, was hung over on my couch. You know what I mean? Like it yeah. was just such a contrast. Yeah. I mean, because one of the things that people don't necessarily know and that puts them off 
is that they think, oh, there's so many things I won't be able to do when I don't drink. You know, I won't be able to go to parties, I won't be able to dance, I won't be able to date. And obviously those things are all challenging and it takes time to learn how to do them. But say, for instance, on that holiday, if me and that gratitude group had been drinking, do you think we would have, you know, ridden cable cars and ridden bikes and all of this, all this exploring and all this fun outdoorsy stuff? I don't think we would have. I think we would have sat in the place that we'd rented and drank. <laughs> yeah. And then potentially, you know, gone out for, you know, a slap up brunch the next day with mimosas and posted a picture of that. But we would have been dying the next day. We wouldn't have wanted to bike across the Golden Gate and go to Sausalito and eat ice cream and go on a ferry. And, you know, there just wouldn't have been any of that. Or even if we had done it, we would have been absolutely crucified. I remember um, there was such a juxtaposition as well, biking across the Golden Gate Bridge on that particular trip because I'd done it, um, I want to say, maybe four years earlier when I was so hungover and I did not enjoy it at all. I was just a bit shaky and fearful about being on a bike and I actually fell off when I got to Sausalito and busted my face open, had to have seven stitches in my face. And then, of course, I used the injury as the excuse to start drinking again, even though it was about two o'clock because, you know, I'd hurt myself. Yeah. So I needed a drink and then carried on drinking through till 11 and ruined the next day as well. So it feels like such hard work keeping alcohol in your life that when you finally let it go, you realize everything is actually easier. And I have time and energy and money to do things that I didn't do before. Or even if I did them before, I can now fully enjoy them because I'm not hungover or jonesing to go to a bar instead of be on this bike. So it just changes everything. And you find that your life opens up rather than stays in this very small little circle where the only thing you really, truly enjoy is drinking. Yeah. I mean, that comes through so clearly in all of your books. And Hi there. If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, the Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white knuckling it, or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step -step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one -on -one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings, or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a one-day-at-a-time approach. Instead, it's a step-by-step -step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. 
And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time, and I would love to see you in the course. And that's why I love recommending them to women, because it really is the flip side. You you almost take every argument that we all have, that we all hold on to about why we don't want to stop drinking, and you flip it on its head to show, you know, you're actually keeping your world really small and missing out on things by drinking. Mm, yeah, it's so true. Um, but there's, it, you can't, people will often say, oh, your book got me sober, but that is just not true. I, I, my book did not get them sober because for a start, they wouldn't have picked up my book unless they'd been thinking about quitting drinking first of all and then they go on the journey they do the work all you can do is hand someone a torch and say you know here's how I did it now you go find your way you you can give them a map of how you did it and give them an idea of the rough terrain but you can't um walk that walk for them and and they have to be ready for it so it's until people are sober curious genuinely and they're they're seriously sick of being sick and tired and sick of their drinking then they they can't get there Mm -hmm. yeah but I think you're right that like eight years ago you know the first time when you quit drinking when I started quitting drinking nobody was talking openly certainly not on Instagram or social media or people I knew about having loved drinking quitting and that life was actually awesome on the other side no one was talking about that openly no it really wasn't a narrative that I could find anywhere I mean apart from as we've talked about at the very end of Quitlet, where it was like and then I quit and everything was great bye yeah. <laughs> you know the end and um, I was hungry for it I wanted to know why exactly it would be worth it I wanted to know why exactly I should go through this savage withdrawal and how of having to relearn how to socialize um I needed the carrot I didn't want the stick yeah I mean, I, I'd already you know I'd had I'd been living in the stick um of the the consequences of my drinking for so long and the stick wasn't going to get me sober basically I needed to see or have some idea of how I was going to feel when I was four years sober, like why my life was going to be better. So for me, that's what I tried to provide. This is just a big, fat, juicy carrot. Yeah. (laughs) To inspire people. Because you've talked about how the way it's presented is that you remove the alcohol and then you kind of live your life in penance for having not been able to control or moderate this addictive substance, right? Yeah, and I, th- I think, um, yeah, I think, I think some people do live their sobriety forever missing alcohol and not fully exploring what it took away from them, and 
how hellish their life was. And that's a real shame because I think it is 100% something that drags us down. Um, even when I think back to the day, the very, you know, when I very first started drinking, there was, there, were, there was a price to pay even then. But then the price just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And the, um, what I was getting from it got smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, it's, it's just as time goes on, it takes away so much from you. Um, so, I, yeah, I find it really sad when people f- forever miss alcohol um but of course some people do and that's that's not wrong that's just what their journey feels like but for me I didn't want it to feel like that so I did everything I could to positively affirm sobriety to myself and it's worked yeah (laughs) um so yeah and I think there is what you bring forth is so many positives about you know, walking away from this one liquid, right? It's just a beverage. And you put that down and you get all these other amazing things on the other side. And life really is great. Yeah. And I mean, like anything in life that is that is worthwhile, it takes an awful lot of effort and an yeah. awful lot of grit. Um, you know, anything setting yourself up in the career that you want or buying a house or having a family or um not having a family and going traveling a lot around the world anything that is um magical and life affirming takes an awful lot of effort and this is just like that um but if you can hang on in there (laughs) through the beginning bit it's so 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 worth it One thing I love that you wrote in Sunshine Warm Sober was that instead of calling what you're doing in life where you are right now, instead of calling it recovery, you you call it discovery. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, I I think it did feel a lot like recovery for, I would say, the first four or so years because my brain and body was had been so bashed about by alcohol and your brain literally has to recover and interestingly one of the ways that you can accelerate that is through exercise because that really helps your brain recover from years of heavy drinking but it so it does feel like recovery really does you're you're patching up um damaged relationships you're repairing frayed um connections with work colleagues you are recovering who you were before drinking sort of sent everything slaloming off course um so it really does feel like you are recovering but then once you get beyond that bit once you've done all that work feels more like discovery because you're you're discovering who you can become like your your full potential I really feel now that I'm fulfilling my potential whereas before I was just squandering it um and that's such a beautiful way to feel because for instance my birthdays I used to hate birthdays because I felt like another year had inexorably rolled by and I still hadn't you know 
done the things that I was always intending to do. I was always writing lists and not doing them. And I <laughs> yeah. still write lists and don't do them. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I only do like a quarter of my to-do list on any given day. But, you know, eventually I get through it because I just have so much more um, wherewithal. Whereas before it was being completely sucked up by booze. So, yeah, I prefer to think of it now as discovery rather than recovery. I think one of the most beautiful parts in Sunshine Warm Sober that I read was where you talked about at the end kind of, I probably won't continue to write books about sobriety. And the part I loved was you said, I have a big, beautiful life to lead. We're allowed to move beyond our addictions to enjoy our newfound, wild and precious freedom. Yeah, I mean, I think you can get into a place where you are only living in the fact that you're a non-drinker now. And I don't want my life to feel like that. And I don't want to only write about that, even though I have uh, doing so has been honestly the best thing that I've ever done career wise. It's just been so rewarding and so healing. Um, but there are other things out there that I want to explore, hence discovery, right? And I feel like if you if you feel like you're always going to have to live in the non-drinking space, then you don't get to go off and do all those other cool things that you want to do, which is part of the whole reason why you got sober. So I think it's important to be allowed to move on while also recognizing that, you know, if, if your thoughts are straying back towards drinking, then you need to immerse yourself again. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, you I should, just love, because I be always allowed. think that like not drinking is the foundation, but not the goal, right? The goal is not to just go through life not drinking. The goal is to let go of that shit so you can get unstuck. So you can, you know, like you said, live your big, beautiful life. Yeah. And I think it's, what's interesting is we, we tend to forget the fact that, you know, I started drinking really early. I started drinking when I was 12. But for the first 12 years of my life, I didn't drink. So drinking is an addendum. It's not our default. It's something we add. It's an appendage. And so if you start thinking of it as that, that you are just removing something that you'd added rather than living without something that we should all do, rewires it a little bit and this is I I don't believe that you know teens should be treated as if they're definitely going to grow up to be drinkers because they're not a lot of the time now you know we already know that 20 somethings a third of them don't drink so it's something that is beginning to become an option it's it's an addition rather than a default and I think that's a really healthy place for society to go to yeah I love that. That's beautiful. Well, so if anyone's listening to this and is just in that really hard place of starting and stopping or starting again, or, you know, trying to get some days, but going back to it, do you have any advice or anything you'd like to say to them? Yeah, I do. And this is so important because I'm, I've read about this a lot. And one of the things that drives the further slips, the further relapses, whatever you want to call them, is the shame of having slipped. And 
it's so, 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 so important that the family and friends of those who are embarking upon this sober journey know that it's completely normal and expected that people will slip. 99.99% of people do. It's just what happens. And it's not a failure. It's just that you're trying to break something you've been doing for decades. And of course, you're going to get pulled back. Of course, it's going to be difficult. Of course, it's going to, there's going to be multiple dozens, maybe even hundreds of day ones. But you literally cannot fail if you don't stop trying. Um, I often think of it as like, I don't know, Edison, who invented the light bulb. Is that right? Is it anyway, I think it was Edison. <laughs> Um, you know, there must have been hundreds of, of times when it didn't work, but then they tweak it, they retry it, they learn something from each time it doesn't work. And eventually you have a light bulb at the end of it. You know, it's it's like that. It's more like inventing than it is failing because you, you are learning something from every single slip. And as long as you heed those lessons, the time in between the slips will become longer and then one day it will click. It really will. And it's often when you least expect it. Yeah, that's a perfect place to end this. I love this. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I love your new book. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Casey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.